Hey, what's up? It's your boy Anthony Cass Clark, and welcome to another edition of Thoughts Over Coffee Daily. Good people of the world, what is up? I hope that all is well, all is well on this side. Today and tomorrow, I have two special podcasts lined up for you, part one and part two. It is Masterclass featuring Oprah Winfrey. Oprah is one of my favorite people in the world. Uh, my fiance tells me that I cannot call her Bay anymore, and that's not to be disrespectful, but Oprah is a woman that I admire, um, a woman that I look up to, someone who just, I consider a great human being, one of a kind, just a, a blessed being, someone who literally has been birthed from the grace of God. So, and we're all from the grace of God, not to make her sound like, you know, <laughs> the grace is sufficient for all of us. Let's just say that. But she is someone who comes from um, very unique circumstances. She comes from incredibly hard times. She comes from just a, a background that most people cannot relate to. Most people cannot wrap their minds around, but somehow she can she comes from that and somehow she has grown from that and become the Oprah that we all know that she is today. Um she's someone from Mississippi, you know, without running water. You you'll hear about all these hard times, sexual abuse, abuse just in incredibly tough and horrific circumstances. And um yeah, I won't say too much about it cuz I'll let her tell it. Like I said, it's part 2 series, so today and tomorrow, um, so I want you guys to tune in, get a lot from it, take some notes if you must, because I definitely did once I heard this maybe like six months ago. Um, so yeah, without further ado, you know what? Before I say without further ado, share this podcast. If you get something from today's episode, share it, screenshot it. Thank you, everyone who's been doing it. Shout out to my man Will. Shout out to Danny. Shout out to Cat. Shout out to Will Notes. Uh, shout out to uh, my man Marge, even though we call him Mark nowadays, but he's still Marge. Uh, shout out to everyone who is screenshotting their phones and sharing on Instagram. You guys mean the world to me. You guys are doing everything, uh, and I appreciate it. Thank you for spreading the word of Thoughts Over Coffee. So without further ado, here it is, Oprah Winfrey, Masterclass. Every thought creates an action that will create a consequence. There are a lot of things that are beyond our control, but what you do have control over is how you react to whatever happens in your life. The more centered I become, the more able I am to see what a miracle my life is. But I never thought my life would be like this. Everybody has a story, and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass. I certainly consider myself to be a blessed person, but you know what the thing is? People don't even get this. The chances of coming out of Mississippi in 1954. Let's paint that picture, will you? Mississippi, in the time I was born, 
was the most racist state in the United States. You don't want to be caught after dark if you're a black person in Mississippi. It had absolutely no regard for your humanity. Didn't even think you were human. The fact that I could be born at that time and now do what I do, am who I am, live where I live, is the most extraordinary story I, I, can, I can ever imagine. I don't know anything more extraordinary. Who I am was defined for me at a very early age. When I was four years old, I remember watching my grandmother boiling clothes. I was standing on the back porch looking through the screen. And my grandmother was hanging clothes from the line. She had an apron around her waist, and inside the waist pocket were clothespins. We had no running water or electricity. So in order to wash your clothes, you had to wash them. And my grandmother did in a big boiling pot. She would boil them to boil the clothes clean. And as she would hang the clothes on the line and take the clothespins out of her pocket and then put a couple in her mouth, the whole, she turned to me and said, Obergale, talking through the clothespins in her mouth, Obergale, my middle name, you better watch me now. Because one day you're going to have to learn how to do this for yourself. And a voice inside me, a feeling, uh, I think of it now as a voice because it was so strong, said, no, Grandmama, I won't. And I felt in that moment watching her that this will not be my life. At the time, I didn't know what spirituality was. I thought I had a sense of what God was. I didn't think it was God speaking to me. I just thought, I know that this will not be my life. My grandmother's dream for me, as was all of my relatives who were my caretakers, their dream for me was that I would be like them. My grandmother was a maid. My mother was a maid. All of my aunts were maids. And so they thought that that's what I would be. And my grandmother used to work for a family, a white family, and in taking care of their children, and nurturing that family. She thought that they were good white folks. And she used to say to me, I hope you can grow up and get yourself some good white folks. In those days, being good simply meant you don't call me the N-word. You give me some level of respect. I still have to go to the back door, and I'm still treated as a second-class citizen, but I'm not degraded personally by you. So she wanted me to grow up to have some good white folks. And I often think that I wish she had seen that I did grow up to get a lot of good white folks working for me. She would not have believed it. The life that I live, my grandmother would not have imagined possible for, for me. Who I am is grounded specifically in my sense of spiritual worth and value to myself, to the planet, to the universe, to God. What my grandmother gave to me, not having any formal education and not going beyond the third grade herself, she gave me Jesus. She taught me how to read as much as she knew how to read. And she taught me how to read by reading the Bible and Bible stories. So I literally grew up for the first six years of my life believing that Jesus was my daddy.
This is when you went to church and you went to church all the time. I'd be there for Sunday school. I'd then be there for 11 o'clock service. We'd go home. My grandmother would cook. You'd come back for 3 o'clock service. You'd have Baptist training union at, you know, 5 or 6 o'clock. So you're in church all day long. Wednesday night's choir rehearsal. So I grew up believing in the Bible that said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is what I was taught, you know, when I first learned to read. So I believe that. And what I now know is that we all become exactly what you believe. So if you believe that you can do all things because you have been endowed by a power from on high, given to you by the grace of God, if you believe that, you walk into the world understanding that whatever problems you may encounter, you still have God to lean on. As I grew, my perception and understanding of what God means grew with me. I expanded my view of what it means to be a citizen of the universe, to be a part of the energy field that is omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, and all-present in all things. And so my confidence comes from knowing that there is something greater than myself that I am a part of and is also a part of me. I call that God, but I do nothing without that understanding. How I think one masters one's life is to understand that you are co-creating that life with the ultimate creator. Not understanding that puts you at your own pitiful, meager, little will. And everything is left up to you. And you can't do it. You cannot survive in this world by yourself, just believing in yourself. You're not big enough to do it. I'm not big enough to do it. Nobody's big enough to do it. You have to understand that your very presence here as a human being on earth came from something greater than you. And not just your parents who wanted to have a child. The fact that that egg was hit by that particular little sperm in that particular moment and you were created. Wow. How amazing is that? Of all the different choices that had to happen in order for you to be here now. What a celebration that is. So when you recognize the mystery of that creation, all the circumstances that had to configure and reconfigure themselves, all the questions that we don't have answers to, you have to know this. The fact that I'm here matters. And the fact that you're there matters. This is no accident. None of us are. I think so much of how you were raised and how you're treated in the world has everything to do with how you then want to treat other people. I lived with my grandmother until I was six years old. And at six years old, suddenly was removed from Mississippi and sent to live with my mother in Milwaukee. No explanation to me at all. I knew I would never see my grandmother again. And that was really the only person I knew. But inside myself, I knew, you're going to have to take care of yourself. So I walked into this home that my mother was living in in Milwaukee. She was working as a maid, and she had another child who was my half-sister, Pat. And Pat was light-skinned, and I am not. And I knew instantly, 
having never been in that situation before. I knew instantly that Ms. Miller, who owned the house and was light-skinned, could pass for white. I knew she didn't like me and that Pat was her favorite. And so, at six years old, I wasn't allowed to come in the house. The first night, away from my grandmother, I wasn't allowed to come in the house. Ms. Miller said I had to sleep out on the porch. I remember being afraid every night of what was out there. And I created this imaginary angel friend for myself, sent from God to take care of me, to protect me in the nighttime. After that, I had the most tumultuous childhood. I was raped at nine years old and for years blamed myself for being raped. I was molested from 10 to 14, became pregnant when I was 14 years old. I hid the pregnancy because I was so afraid that everybody was going to kill me. I was acting out. I'd run away from home. I stayed away from home for two weeks, just really walking the streets and living in friends' basements. My mother was so upset with me. She was going to put me in a detention home. We get to the detention home, and they didn't have any room. They were filled. And sent my mother away and said, try us in two weeks. And my mother said, I cannot wait two weeks to get you out of my house. You have to go now. She sent me to live with my father. So I walk into my father's house, pregnant. He hasn't seen me in years, so he doesn't know. So I'm wearing big sweaters and coats and covering myself. He gives me the rules of the house when I arrive. And the rules are, you do as I say. There is a curfew. You don't match the curfew. I will put you out. And I believed him. He says to me, the worst thing you could ever do is bring shame on this family. And any daughter of mine that ever became pregnant, I would rather see her dead floating down the Cumberland River than to bring shame on this family. Now he's saying this to me as I know I am pregnant. So I am thinking, how can I kill myself before this happens? I did all kinds of crazy things like drinking bleach and trying to fall downstairs and all that stuff. My legs started to swell. I got sent to the pediatrician and I'm sitting in the pediatrician's office, and the pediatrician obviously knows that I'm pregnant. But I'd hidden it successfully for four or five months from my father. And the pediatrician says, either this is the biggest tumor I've ever seen, or you're pregnant. And you've got to tell me, because if I send you up to be x-rays, it's going to hurt this baby. And I broke down in the pediatrician's office. As it turned out, the baby, who was a boy, did not live. And... Probably a week after I gave birth, I was back in school. I never felt any connection whatsoever to the child that I carried or gave birth to. And I later heard that my mother hid me. And what was so odd is that 14 years later, I did the same thing. And I know what that means. I know why my mother and I have always had such a disconnection. 
because I understand what it means to carry a life inside you and have no connection to that life inside you, to be ashamed that you are carrying that life inside you. So that really allowed me to have a lot of empathy to people who were born unwanted. The very idea of coming into the world and people are happy that you are here is a gift. To know that you were wanted, that people wanted you. So I understand what it means to come and people really didn't want you. And they're going to make do with what they have. Now somebody has to take care of this child. Who's it going to be? Understanding what it feels like to not be wanted has created for me a great desire to make everyone feel wanted and to know that they matter. That your being here, your very existence here, because you are here, because you made it, you are worthy. I consider myself to be a teacher at heart. In every show that I've ever done, that is what I'm striving for. That is my intention, regardless of what the subject is. So I'm talking to cancer patients. I'm talking to molested children. I'm talking to the molesters. I'm talking about makeovers. I'm talking about fashion. I'm talking about what's going on in the world. Whatever it is, for me, the intention is, what can I teach? What can I learn? How can I use myself as a vessel for something bigger than this conversation? How can I touch a nerve, bring a piece of light, a piece of information that allows somebody who is watching to see themselves or to see their life in a way that opens them up, that gives them an aha or, hmm, I never thought of it that way before. I live for that moment for myself and for other people. Several years ago, I was doing a show with Phil McGraw and a woman who lost her daughter, and her daughter had been murdered 10 years before. She later told us that she was planning to go home and kill herself after being on that show, that this was her last homage to her daughter. I thought after I'd made this goal that now I could go home. I'm sorry. I was going to go home and take my life. <laughs> because I wanted so bad to reach this goal. And I felt like once I reached it, I could just let go. And in that show, Phil says to her, Can you at least entertain the fact that how long you grieve is not a reflection of how deeply you loved your daughter? Yes, I think I can. He says, why do you choose to belabor the day of your daughter's death and play that over and over and over in your head for the past 10 years instead of celebrating the 18 years that she lived? I could see and feel her get it. And she actually said the thing that I, you know, love I never thought of it that way. I really never thought of it that way. I got goosebumps when she said that. That is why I do the show. That is why I do this work, because I want somebody in whatever I'm doing to say, hmm, 
I never thought of it that way before. A new way of looking at your life. I've spent my life speaking in churches since I was three and a half years old, and I grew up earning money in school, doing speeches. And when I was eight years old and was living with my father for a short time, I'd gone to church for the 11 o'clock service, and we used to have what they called afternoon Sunday teas, where the women would come back to church and they would make food for the church and people would sit up and there'd be a program, there'd be singing, there'd be a choir, there'd be some recitations. And the little girl who was supposed to speak and do the welcome had gotten sick and couldn't do it. Brother Henry Mack said to my father, do you think Oprah could do the welcome? My stepmother says, we can do better than the welcome. I'm going to teach you Invictus by William Ernest Henley. So between one o'clock and three o'clock, I learned beyond this space of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scrolls. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I didn't even know what I was saying. <laughs> I learned it. I thought, master of my fate, captain of my soul. I like that part. I took that to heart, and that became a mantra for myself. It was a lesson in excellence that I learned that has stayed with me forever. And that is when you do well, when you do your best, people notice. I loved reading, and reading was my friend, my companion. It was my escape. So in the third grade, when we were given the book Honestly, Katie John to read, and I turned my book report in three days after the book was given, we'd had two weeks, Ms. Driver couldn't believe it. And Ms. Driver told Ms. Duncan and all the teachers in the teacher's lounge, that's what they talked about, that little Winfrey child. The reaction from my third grade teacher to me turning in the book report early said, oh, I like that. When you do well, people notice. When you do your best, people notice. And that is true. Whether you are making fries at a fast food restaurant, if yours are the best fries, people always want to come to your line. And so wherever you are, always do your best. And doing your best puts you at the next level. That is the lesson I learned in the third grade. I've never forgotten it. I was pregnant when I was 14. After the baby died, my father said to me, you're getting a second chance. I don't know why you're getting a second chance, but you're getting a second chance. And if I were you, I'd take advantage of it. I knew that I'd been down a perilous road and it had felt awful to me. And so in the moment that I was told, this is your second chance, I didn't just hear that. I felt that in every fiber of my being. And I took it. I took it. I took it to heart and made a decision that I'm going to do the best and be the best and act as the best that I can. So I became an A student. I excelled in everything. By the time I was 15, I had become such an achiever that the world around me was starting to notice. I was chosen to go to the White House Conference on Youth, picked out of two kids in the state of Tennessee. Because of that, I was interviewed by a local newspaper and a local radio station. A year later, the DJ who had interviewed me at the local radio station, they were looking for somebody to enter the misfire prevention contest. And he said, what about that kid we talked to? Up until that year, nobody who had anything other than red hair had won, which means 
obviously no black person. I don't think a black person had ever even entered. I entered the contest, and that morning, getting dressed for school, I had seen Barbara Walters on the Today Show. It was just prophetic, because I didn't watch the Today Show, just TV happened to be on. When it came time to the question and answer period, everybody was asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would you like to do with your life? All the best answers had been taken. A girl before me said, I would just like to care for people and be a nurse because I just love caring for people. And someone else gave my answer. I would be a teacher, so I thought, can't say that now. So I made up the answer of wanting to be a journalist because I believe giving information to the world can help the world be a better place. That just came off the top of my head, I thought. And I thought that because I'd seen Barbara Walters, and I was really just trying to think of something that somebody else hadn't said. And I thought, okay, okay, well, that would be good. I won the contest, up to everybody's surprise, especially mine. I went back to the radio station to pick up my prize, which was a long jean watch and a uh, digital clock radio, the kind that flipped. While I was sitting there waiting on them to get the prizes, that same DJ said to me, would you like to hear your voice on tape? I said, sure. He brings me into the little booth, the news booth, and there's this, like, AP wire service going. He tore off some copy, handed me the copy, and said, can you read this? Oh, yeah, I can read it. So I sat there, and I read, as I thought a news person would read. I read, as I thought Barbara Walters would read. He played it back and went, wow. He then called in his boss, who called in his boss. Before I know it, there were six people over the window, all watching me read. And I was hired that day. It hadn't occurred to me that I could even be a journalist until I saw Barbara Walters. You know, people would say that that's luck. That's much bigger than luck. There's a hand of something, an energy of something, a force of something much greater than luck at work there, that all of that came together the way that it did. There was a design to it. There is no such thing as luck, in my opinion. Maybe winning the lottery is luck, depending upon how that money is used and what it actually does to enhance your life. Maybe. Nothing about my life is lucky. Nothing. A lot of grace, a lot of blessings, a lot of divine order. But I don't believe in luck. For me, luck is preparation meeting the moment of opportunity. There is no luck without you being prepared to handle that moment of opportunity. And so what I would say for myself is, is that because of my hand and a hand and a force greater than my own, I have been prepared in ways that I didn't even know I was being prepared for. And the truth is, for me and for every person Every single thing that has ever happened in your life is preparing you for the moment that is to come. There's a spiritual that says, wouldn't take nothing for my journey now, for my journey now, for my journey now. Wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. So I wouldn't take nothing because had I not been raised in an environment where I came unwanted and people had to take care of me. I would not have the passion, compassion, empathy, sympathy, caring, care, understanding that I do for other people who were not wanted. 
that's, that's all a part of my journey to get to be who I am and where I am. Wouldn't take nothing for my journey now. Everybody's life has a pattern. That's really how you get to determine what your purpose is. If a lot of people don't know their purpose. And if you don't know your purpose, your immediate goal is to figure that out. Because otherwise you're just wandering around here. So the moment you can figure out what it is you're supposed to be doing, the sooner you are able to get about the business of doing that. I'd say my purpose is to be a sweet inspiration. And the reason I know that is because that's what I've been doing since I was three years old. Those women in the church and everything in your life informs you what that pattern and purpose is. For me, that's how I felt the very first time I stood up in front of people speaking. How do you know that it's your purpose? It feels like it's the right space for you. It feels like this is what I should be doing. This is how I'm supposed to feel. This is where I feel most myself. I feel at home here. So after I was hired at the radio station, two years later, I'm a sophomore in college, and I was in Mr. Cox's scenic design class, and I got a call from the local anchorman for CBS there named Chris Clark. Chris Clark called me out of class. When I go back to Mr. Cox's class, he says, what was that all about? And I said, this guy from CBS keeps calling me and wants me to come and audition for television. And so Mr. Cox says, so when are you going? And I said, well, this is the third time he called, and I told him I can't because, you know, I have to finish, <laughs> I have to finish my speech and drama class. And Mr. Cox said, that is why you go to school, fool, so that people can call you from CBS. Needless to say, I took the interview with Chris Clark and was hired in Nashville as a television reporter when I was 19 years old. I learned early on what I'm supposed to be doing is not sitting in front of a desk, reading copy, and throwing to the sports guy. That's not what I do well. I know how to imitate that. I know how to create that. I know how to pretend that I am a news person, but that's not where my heart lies. And so the idea of preparing and reading the news copy ahead of time really didn't sit well with me. I didn't like reading the copy ahead of time. I felt somehow like a fake, because I already know it, but then I'm acting like I don't know it. So some crazy notion I got in my head that I should just read it cold. I should just be cold so that I hear the news as the people are hearing the news, because then we have a connection. Crazy way to do the news. One night, I was reading the news, and I hadn't read the copy ahead of time, because I wanted to be surprised when the people were surprised. Six people killed in a car collision today. Can you believe that? I had a list of countries I was reading off, and I realized that I just called Canada Canada, and I caught myself. I just called Canada Canada and said, I just called Canada Canada and started cracking up. And that thing where you crack up and you can't stop yourself, and so you just now have to go to break because you were laughing at yourself. So I got reprimanded for it, but the viewers really liked it and called in and said, well, who is that girl? So that moment of making a mistake allowed me to break through to really sort of the truth of who I am so I could stop pretending to be like Barbara Walters. And that was the first breakthrough moment for me. My own voice is a better voice than pretending to have her voice. My own voice, what my own responses are better than pretending to be someone else. I could be a better Oprah Winfrey than a pretend Barbara Walters. I say the universe speaks to us always first in whispers. And a whisper usually in your life feels like, hmm, that's odd. Or, hmm, 
that doesn't make any sense. Or, hmm, is that right? It just really feels like that. It's that, it's that kind of subtle. And if you don't pay attention to the whisper, it gets louder and louder and louder. And I say, it's like getting thumped upside the head. You don't pay attention to that. It's like getting a brick upside your head. You don't pay attention to that. The brick wall falls down. That is the pattern that I see in my life and so many other people's lives. And so I ask people, what are the whispers? What's whispering to you now? And can you catch it in the whisper? I was asked to come to Baltimore, which is a larger market. That's what everybody in television is trying to get up to, the larger city and the larger market. I remember meeting with the news director there. The first thing, see, whisper, first sign, first sign, but I didn't have sense enough to get this then. First sign was going into a meeting and people want you to change your name. They said, nobody's ever going to remember Oprah, nor will they ever know how to pronounce it. So you should change your name. It's going to make it much better for our promos. So it's all about the promos. And up until that time, I never really liked my name. But suddenly, when someone asked me to change it, I thought, well, it's my name. Why, why should I change my name just to make your promos better? So I said no. That would have been the first sign, though. So they do this whole big campaign on what is an Oprah, where they're interviewing people on the street. What is an Oprah? And people say, I don't know. Is it a vegetable? What are you talking about? Is it an opera? I don't know. I was on the back of every bus and every billboard and every whatever. What is an Oprah? And I cannot fulfill whatever the expectation is because I'm just, you know, this 22-year-old young green behind the ears from Nashville. One day, the assistant news director comes to me and says, we're having problems with the chroma key. Now, the chroma key is that sort of like green screen behind you. He says, your hair is bleeding into the chroma key because your hair is too thick. I go, my hair is too thick? Now, I've always prided myself on my hair. He said, your hair is too thick. And you know what? Your eyes are too far apart, too. And your nose is, your nose is really wide. This is an African-American man, too. He says, you really could use cosmetic surgery. Would you consider that? And I said, I'm not cutting my face. He says, well, if you won't do that, then we need to try to get you a makeover. So he sent me to New York City to a hair salon. The first thing I do is I ask the guy, we walk in, I say, excuse me, do y'all do black hair here? And he says, oui, madame, we do black hair, we do red hair, we do blonde hair, we do your hair, your hair. So they do my hair. I let this guy put a French perm on my black hair. And by the time I leave that salon, my head is throbbing because it's like all the skin burned off in hell and scabs. And my hair starts to fall out, fall out, fall out, fall out. Day after day, my hair is falling out to the point where I am looking like a plucked chicken. Now, talk about feeling terrible about myself. I've been raised to believe that a woman's hair is her crown and glory. I never thought of myself as an attractive girl, a cute girl, a pretty girl, but I did have some hair, and I knew I was smart. So all I have is hair and my brain power, and now I've lost the hair. So I think nothing. I think I'm, I'm devastated. The news director can't figure out what to do with me on the evening news because all my hair has fallen out. So they had to take me off of the evening news. And as I am off the evening news, making $22,000 a year, at 22 years old, they're trying to figure out what to do with me so that they can get their money's worth on the $22,000.
But what I learned from that is that I am not my hair. I'm not my skin. I'm not how wide my nose is. I'm not how far apart or not far apart my eyes are. The essence of who I am has nothing to do, really, with what I look like. That's what that taught me. Also, I was always agitated and frustrated as a reporter. Getting up in the morning for the sole purpose of finding the worst thing that had happened that day and really putting that energy out into the world. I couldn't figure out how I could be of service doing that. It just was hard for me every time. So I'd cover a fire, and then I'd have to go home and figure out how am I going to get them blankets and how can I help the family. And, and then I'd get called in to the news director's office. Why are you meddling in those people's business? And so it was, it was just, I was always agitated, and I really was kind of in a lost space. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to just let this contract run out for the $22,000. And they put me on the local talk show they were creating called People Are Talking. I certainly could not foresee 25 years of the Oprah show and owning my own network. But the day I did that talk show, I knew my life had just changed. And that is when I knew I was home. <laughs> 